0: Heavenly Father, as we really do just enter into this new year as a church family and seek to make much of you, I pray that these times together, every Sunday, Lord, that we would realize and just appreciate and give gratitude for what a privilege it is to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of of you that have a relationship with you and have the ability to come and to submit our lives before you, Lord. That is an incredible privilege, Lord, and it's been bought by Jesus' death on the cross. And so as we begin this year, we want to give you an immense amount of gratitude, immense amount of praise this morning for what you've done. It is a privilege to be able to open your word. It's a privilege to be with other believers and to be encouraged in our faith. And so I pray that now as we enter in this time where we have an opportunity, that privilege to open your word together, I pray that you would do what we cannot do and that's to change hearts. Pray that you change my heart as I study this year and as, as myself and Mike and other pastors and as we come and bring the word before the congregation, would you do something in our hearts? But we pray too for this church, your church. We pray that you'd do something in all of our hearts together that we would know you more, that we would treasure you more, that we would live more obediently for your gospel. We give you praise in advance for what you're going to do in this time and even as we begin this year and this entire year. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is so good to be back with you. Uh, Rachel and I had a good holiday. We were in Arkansas. Both of our Families are there, and so we spent two weeks there, which was about one week too long, but it was really nice uh, to be with family. It was our first time in seven years not to be with you, our church family, on Christmas Eve, and I just want you to know we really did miss you. It was a a very odd thing uh, being away during that season, but we're grateful to be back, and I'm very excited about this year. I believe that God wants to do something really unique and really special in our church family this year, and so I'm, I'm praying for that. I've been praying for you as we enter into this new year that God would do something amazing in our midst. It really is a privilege every year to be able to open God's Word together, and this year we are going to begin with a new study, you can see it on the banners, a study that we're calling Soul Songs, which is a study of the different series of Psalms in the Scripture. So if you have your Bible today, we'd like to invite you to open it to Psalm chapter 73 this morning. Psalm chapter 73. If you're new to scriptures, Uh, pretty much Psalms are right in the very middle of the Bible. So if you kind of go to the middle, search one way or the other, you're going to eventually find the Psalms. Um, So go ahead and make your way there, Psalm chapter 73. The reason that we gave this sermon series the title Soul Songs is that the Psalms are not so much about high lofty doctrines as they are about how the human heart works, when you open the scriptures and you come to the Psalms, what you find are songs that were written by real people that go into the deep places, the deep motives of the human heart. They deal, deal with deep emotion, deep feelings. If we're honest, many of us don't really know what to do with what goes on in our hearts. There are some of us that are pretty uncomfortable with feelings and emotions, and so we try to just kind of shut them down, right? We, we act like they're not there. I am pretty guilty of this at times. I'd rather not deal with what's there. I don't know what it is. I don't know how I'm going, supposed to deal with it, and so I just kind of ignore it. I mask it. I say what Mike loves. I'm fine, okay? I'm good, even when I'm furthest thing from good. On the other end of the spectrum are many, many people in our culture that consider feelings or emotions to be absolutely sovereign in their lives. They allow their actions and feelings to to, to rule their identity. Everything, for everything in life, feelings are the final word. This is really sad and tragic because these individuals, when feelings come up, they, they think, well, I just must be that way. Instead of looking at their feelings and saying, feelings are one part of me, they they say, feelings are me, feelings are the real me, so I have to do what my feelings say I should do. When you come to the Psalms, the writers of the Psalms don't handle emotions, feelings, they don't handle what's in the heart in either of those directions. They don't ignore them, they don't mask them, they don't push them to the side, but neither do they allow the feelings and emotions to own them. Instead, what you find when you come to these psalms are extremely honest, raw emotions, but what they do is they process them in the presence of God. And church family, as we enter into this series, our goal is to help teach you what it looks like to do that same thing, to take the different feelings that come in different moments and seasons of life and learn how to process them, not by yourself, but instead in the presence of God. With that in mind, let's read Psalm chapter 73 together. Just stick with me. It's going to take a little bit to read through it, but I think it's important that we get the big picture here, starting in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is in their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. "'Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, "'and they say, how can God know? "'Is there knowledge in the Most High? "'Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease and increase in riches. "'All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. "'For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning.' If I, had, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. It's the word of God this morning. While we are going to see a wide array of different emotions, of different feelings in this sermon series... What we see in our text today is a person who had a very conflicted, questioning, doubting heart. This is a detailed detailed description of one person's experience of a crisis of faith. Perhaps some of you are in a season like this. Maybe some of you are in this where there's an internal conflict, where you're struggling with God's presence in your life. Maybe for some of you, you're conflicted about how God is choosing to work in your life. You're wondering, can he be really good or can he really be sovereign? Can he be all-powerful? You're in a season like this. That's what the writer of this psalm is getting at. He is a person in a crisis of faith. Well, no matter where you're at this morning, I think it's important to to find um, some truth in this text. And one of the things that we see is this. Questions and doubts often come about when what we see or experience is different than what we know. Let me explain what I mean by that. When it comes to faith, there are many things that you and I know in our head, right? We know it's true. We've been told it's true. We've been taught by God's Word it's true. But then when we look out in the experiences of our life, what we see doesn't match up with what we know. And it can cause us to be confused. It can cause us to have questions. It can cause us to like this writer. It can cause us to stumble. That's what's happening here. He says in verse 1, I know God is good to those who are pure in heart. In other words, he says, I know that that God is good to those who love him and who serve him. I know that God is good. But right after that in verse 2, what does he say? But as for me, I saw something. I perceived something in this life that was so difficult to process that I almost lost my foothold altogether. I almost stumbled. I almost fell. In this passage, that that word stumbling is no laughing matter. What he's saying in this text is this I got to the point where what I saw caused me to almost turn from the faith. I almost turned my back entirely against God. I almost fell. So the question becomes, what could cause a dilemma like this? And in the heart of this man, the man that his name was Asaph. He's the writer of this psalm. What, what could cause a dilemma like this? What would happen that would cause him to have such big questions to help him be so conflicted? Well, he says it in verses 3 through 14 is the long description, but we get the summary in verse 3 where it says this. If you look at it, it says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw, what? The prosperity of the wicked. What it boils down to is that while Asaph, the writer of the psalm, knew that God was good, the evidence of what he was seeing in his culture pointed in a very different direction. As he scanned the culture around him, he thought about what he had seen over his lifetime. He began to notice, this seems like the wicked, those who ignore God, those who even scoff at God, have much better lives than I'm living. He goes into detail about this. If you look in verse 3, he says they're prosperous. They had all the worldly possessions that they could ever desire. All the physical things that you and I want, he says they had it. If it was the new Apple Watch or whatever, it's like they've got everything. Then he goes to verse 4, he says if that wasn't enough, they're always healthy. He calls them fat and sleek. That was a good thing in that culture. I don't know that we would want to be called fat. Sleek, we'll take that. He says, even in their dying days, up until their dying days, they receive the best care. They don't, they don't, they're not in pain. They don't have to worry where the next dinner is coming from. They have everything that they want. Verse 5, he then says, the wicked don't experience troubles like everyone else. Their money solves their problems. Even when they're arrogant, even when they oppress others, those things seem to lead to more good things in this life. He looks around and he's envious because he says they get the best food. They get the best vacations. They get the best homes. They get the best that this life has to offer. And then he looks at his own life. And what does he see? He sees hardship. He sees toil. He says, even though I try to live for God, even though I try to strive to be holy, even though I'm ministering in the temple of my God, What does he say? Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I told you the Psalms were going to be honest. They're not going to gloss over their feelings. This is a man who has a deep, deep turmoil. He's got a crisis of faith. The great theologian Martin Luther said it this way about Psalm 73. He says, This is a psalm that instructs us against the great offense and stumbling block concerning which all the prophets have complained, namely this, that the wicked flourish in the world. They enjoy prosperity and increase in abundance while the godly suffer cold and hunger and are afflicted and spit upon and despised and condemned. That God seems to be against his friends and to neglect them and to support and give success to his enemies. This is the inner battle that Asaph was facing. This was what was causing this crisis of faith. As he looked out, it didn't match up with what he knew. He thought, God is good. But when I look out, it seems that God is much better to people who are against him than to those who are serving him. If you're honest This morning, I would imagine that you, at some point in your life, have had to think through that same question. Is serving Christ really worth it? If all these other people who don't serve him have all these good things, then then is it really worth it to live my life for him? We look around the world and there's leaders and there's dictators around the world who are horrible men and women, people that do very evil things and yet they live lives of luxury while Christians around the world are being killed. I was reading an article this week about Christians being the number one persecuted group in the world. More Christians died this year than any other group for their faith. We have it very nice here in America. It's not the reality for many Christians around the world. But we don't have to just look in the world. I mean, I think most of us in our own lives have had questions like this. Maybe you've asked a question like one of these questions. How can God really be in control when non-believers have kids who are perfectly healthy? And yet my child is afflicted with a daunting battle with disease. How can God really be considered good toward us when all these godless executives live lives of luxury, go on amazing vacations, and yet no matter how hard I work, I'm stuck in this studio apartment with Netflix as my only companion. Right? Don't know where the next check is going to come from. How about this one? How can God really be all-powerful when that person who is willing to do anything to climb the ladder, even if it's unethical, gets the raise and job promotion while I'm sitting here, have served faithfully and have little to show for it? If God really cares about me, why do unbelievers get to have a lot more fun than I do? Maybe those of you who are high school students, college students, young adults feel this way. Why do they get to go out and have sex with whoever they want to have sex with? Why do they get to live perfect, Instagram-worthy lives while I live for God, have remained sexually moral, and yet I haven't been asked on a date for years? When we look at our lives, we begin to ask these questions. Why? Because no matter how much the Bible argues otherwise, and the Bible argues otherwise throughout it, we are always tempted to be wooed into the lie that we deserve prosperity, health, and external blessings. But those things are our birthright as believers. And when we don't get what we think we deserve, what happens? All of a sudden we go into this place of spiritual vertigo. Even though our mind, we know what is right, we know what we see doesn't match up and we get dizzy and we are in danger of falling, very much like Asaph explains in this text. I would imagine that in a, with a group this size, even on the even on early in January, that some of you, even this holiday, had a moment like this, a crisis of faith, where you felt like you had spiritual vertigo, what you know wasn't matching up with what you see, and you were struggling with that. Well, you need to know this morning, you are not alone. Far from what you may believe, questioning, doubts, do not come just to those who are unspiritual and far from God. You need to be encouraged in that. Questions and doubts come to all of us if you don't believe me look at the person who is talking in psalm chapter 73 this man named asaph wrote 11 of the psalms that we have in scripture okay this is a one of the authors of the bible one of the authors of scripture an incredible man king david had appointed him to lead uh, worship for all of israel so this was no weakling okay this was a spiritual giant in his day He was the worship leader for all of Israel when they came. He came and ministered before the Ark of the Covenant. This was a spiritual giant. And yet, what does he say? There was a moment, there was a season in my life where I almost gave up faith. But thankfully this morning, we know that he didn't give up faith. Your questions and doubts, if handled appropriately, can actually lead you, not further away from God, but they can actually bring you to God. And that's what happens in Asaph's case. He has a complete turnaround. So the question becomes, how does that happen? If you're here this morning and you're doubting and you're questioning, you're you're conflicted, you want to know, how do I get through this phase? How do I regain my foothold in the Christian faith? Well, we see a great example from Asaph. The key to all of this text is in verse 17, but I don't want to jump to that. I don't want you to miss what happens first in verse 15. Something very small happens that he begins to change course. And we're going to read about it here in just a moment. But let me just tell you this. The first thing, if you're in this place of spiritual vertigo, first thing that I would encourage you to do is to grab hold of your question. Grab hold of your question. If you're in a season of doubt or questioning God, don't just ignore it. Don't just allow those questions, those feelings, just to to take you off course. Grab hold of it. Think through it. Think through its implications. That's what Asaph does in verse 15. When he is at his lowest point, he doesn't have a lot to hold on to. So he searches, he's grabbing for anything that he can get. And that's why he says in verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, in other words, if I would have just spoken my feelings, if I would have just been led by them, been owned by them, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying is, I realized I needed time to really think this through. Instead of just being owned by my questions, owned by my feelings, I need to begin to stop and to take that question, to take my doubt, and really give it some time to think through. There are times in your life where you need to doubt your doubts. You need to doubt your questions, and that's what he's talking about here. What does he say? He says, I thought about the children. (laughs) There are many times in this life where I've heard people Uh, different individuals say, you know, I was about to give it all up. I was about to divorce my spouse. I was about to kill myself. I was about to leave the faith. But then I thought what about my kids? In essence, that's what Asaph is saying here. He's saying he's going through this major turmoil. He's about to fall. But then in a moment, he says, I need to stop here. Because what I do with this has implications not only for me, but the people who are watching me. He's not talking about his literal children. He's talking about the family of God that surrounds him as the worship leader. They're watching my life. And he says, I need to stop for a moment and think through this. Now, it's very important that this is not the only step that he takes. But for some of you this morning, it may be the only step you have to grab hold of the question this morning. To say, you know what, I'm going to stop just being so busy with life that I'm going to actually take the questions, the conflict that I'm experiencing, and I'm going to acknowledge them. I'm going to begin to bring them to the surface and begin to work through them. That's what Asaph begins to do. How does he work through them? First, he tries to do it by himself, verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, he said, it seemed to me pointless. I could not handle this question on my own. I I couldn't get the answers that I wanted. So what happens in verse 17? He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. The second step, grab hold of your question, step one. Number two, go to the sanctuary. If you've ever been in a downward spiritual spiral, oftentimes one of the things that you stop doing first is going to the sanctuary. Far too often in the moments that we need to worship the most, what do we do? We turn from worship. Instead of running to God, we ignore God we and we we try to stay as far away from him as we can and all of a sudden we begin to turn to other things some of us in this room may turn to work where we can drown our questions with productivity some of us may turn to the westfield shopping center to drown it with new clothes or maybe we turn to our phone or social media in order to go get a shot of affirmation another like Or maybe we turn to alcohol or drugs or television to numb the struggle altogether. But that's not what Asaph does. He takes his questions and his confusion and his discouragement. Where does he go? He goes into the presence of God. Asaph returns to the sanctuary. And when he says that he returned to the sanctuary, he didn't just come into an empty room like this beautiful room in front of us and, and just sit there by himself and meditate. No, he went to the sanctuary to do what? To worship. He sang when he didn't want to sing. He read read the Word of God and listened to the Word of God when he didn't want to listen. He worshiped when he probably didn't want to worship. Why? Because he knew the answers that he sought could not be found in him alone. It is far too easy when life becomes messy around us that we say, Why should I read my Bible? Why should I keep coming to community group? Why should I keep praying? Why should I keep going to church? Why should I keep taking of the Lord's Supper? All of these are the same way of saying, why should I keep going to the sanctuary? Well, the answer is that you will never move forward out of your spiritual vertigo unless you do so. You're never going to get out of that downward spiral by avoiding worship. It's because when you enter into a sanctuary and you bring your questions and feelings to him and you look at them in light of who he is, in light of what he's done, in light of what he promises to do, it is then and only then that you will get the big picture. And that's what happens with Asaph. When he goes to the sanctuary, all of a sudden he gets the big picture. And while his, all of his questions may not have been answered, the main question for him was answered, and we're going to see that. Verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When he comes into the sanctuary and he rightly begins to worship God, when he begins to see who God is, okay, instead of looking at his current culture and what people had or didn't have, he begins to see who God is and what he had done All of a sudden, Asaph's perspective has a major shift. There's something that happens in his life that changes his life from this moment on. He says, What? I saw their end. What he's talking about is the death of the wicked. Before going into the sanctuary, his perspective was limited to, to the here and now. It was limited to, to the physical possessions of this earth. But all of a sudden, he gets the big picture. He gets an eternal perspective that he could not have had on his own. And what does he realize in that moment? That even though it looks like unbelievers have security in this life, they are on a much more slippery path than he could ever imagine. Why? Because ultimately, God was going to bring about punishment. Ultimately, God was going to right all wrongs. Ultimately, God was going to judge those who refused to worship and bring an end to their flourishing. Friends, you need to see this morning that what you see in this life is not all there is. So many times what he talked about envy, jealousy, all of us have experienced that. We look around and we think, well, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. We get envious and jealousy of what they have in this life. And friends, you need to see, this life is nothing in comparison with eternity. And so what God shows Asaph as he comes into the sanctuary is that that these people who thought they were on solid ground, they were slipping. They were slipping because ultimately they would stand face to face before God. And in that moment, nothing that they had put their foothold in was going to sustain them. You see, your faith in Christ, no doubt, at times, may be shaken. But I want you to consider this morning, especially as we begin this new year, how foolish it would be to rely on the footholds that the world offers in replacement of Jesus. I mean, think about the footholds that this world puts its stock in. Money. Really? Recognition. Success. Fame. Sexuality. Career. Career. When that moment of death comes and judgment comes, do you want your footing to be in any of those things? I can promise you they will not hold in that moment. God's judgment is sure it is coming. And that's where Asaph realizes I had a very limited perspective when I was just looking at this life. My estimation was totally off here. I thought things were valuable, but I realized that that they weren't so valuable. I love what he says in verse 21. I've often felt this way in my own walk with God. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, in essence, he said, when I was having this internal struggle, what? I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He realizes when I get into your presence, who am I compared to you? My knowledge is nothing but ignorance. My wisdom is nothing more than like an animal. I'm like a beast toward you says, when I get in your presence, it's your eternity that matters most. And it's this perspective that leads to one of the most beautiful pieces of writing, I think, in all of the Bible. Verse 23, he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, he's talking about the end and that day of judgment and that day of death, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. The last step for Asaph, when he gets the big picture, what does he do? He gives himself wholeheartedly. To God. I want to encourage you, church family, this year to seek to give yourself wholeheartedly to God. He realizes in this moment that while He may not have in this life all that others may have, He has the one thing that has ultimate value a relationship with the living God. Do you understand how much value you have in a relationship with God this morning? I love, he talks about the extent of this relationship. He says, even in my questioning, what? You are holding my right hand. You didn't leave me. He says, you're going to counsel me through all the ups and downs of this life. And then ultimately on that day when judgment happens, when I die and I stand face to face, not only will you not push me aside, but what does it say? You will receive me to glory. That word receive is a picture of the warmest kind of welcome. We'd never have to question God's goodness. As Christians, we never have to be conflicted or question God's goodness. Why? Because of what stands right above me, stands in the middle of this room, what is the focus of the Christian life, and that is the cross. We never have to question God's love for us because he died for us. He died on the cross so that our envy and our jealousy that were totally uh, misplaced desires could be forgiven. He died on the cross so that the punishment that we deserve would be taken upon him so that we could gain the life that we didn't deserve. He died so that we could be restored into a relationship with the living God of the universe. When Asaph realized what he had in a relationship with God, it totally changed his perspective. He says, no longer do I want all these other things. He came into this text saying, what? I desire what all the wicked have. I want health and I want prosperity. I want all these things. But what does he say in verse 25? He says, there is nothing that I desire on this earth but you. As we enter into this new year, I want to leave you with this question. What is your desire for this coming year? Some of you probably desire more friendships. Maybe some of you desire more money. Some of you a better job, a different housing situation. Some of you better health. None of those things are bad desires, but I'm telling you they are misplaced desires when you make any of those things the foothold of your life. When you make any of those things your treasure, You will find yourself conflicted like Asaph found himself in this text. But when he came to the sanctuary and beheld God's presence and his glory and considered everything he had in God, he said, I had this thing totally wrong. For me, he says in verse 28, it is good to be near God. That is all I need. I wonder this morning if the only thing you received in this coming year was more of God's presence, more of God's hand in your life, more suffering that led you to a closer relationship with God, would your heart be satisfied? That's what he says. You are the satisfaction of my soul. You are my portion. For many of us, this doesn't line up. We, we grade God's goodness by our own circumstances. But he says, when I get the big picture, that's not the case. Let me close with this. In 1851, there was a english missionary a man named alan gardner he was on a ship on his way to south america where he was going to begin a new mission filled work there was a lot of fanfare people were excited about it he left a lot of things in order to do this and yet sadly his ship never made it to his destination they crashed outside uh, off some of the islands off the coast of south america and they while they made it to land both he and his crew survived a little bit But eventually they died a very painful, terrible death from starvation. So you look at this man's life, Alan Gardner, and it seems like everything went wrong for him, right? He never got to the mission field. He starved to death far away from his family. In his journal, he was writing, he prayed, Lord, rescue me, and yet he was never rescued, and ultimately he died. When they found his body, not very far from his body was his journal that he'd been keeping almost all up until the point of his death. In that journal, it would make a lot of sense for him to be angry at God, for him to say, God, I did this for you. How could you have done this to me? I I did what you told me to do, and I didn't even get to South America. I mean, what's up, God? But I want you to listen to what he wrote. The very last thing he wrote in his journal was Psalm 3410, which says this. This is a man who is starving to death. Remember that. The young lions do lack and they suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Underneath that verse was this statement. I I am overwhelmed right now with a sense of the goodness of God. If you look at this life and the cost-benefit structures of this world, the implications of following Christ may seem pointless. To many of us, it may seem unfair, like other people have things way better than we do. Why us suffer? Why do we have to try to battle sin? Why do I have to do all of these things? But as we bring our questions and doubts and our envy into the sanctuary of God, a room now filled with people who are on that same journey that you are on, we are reminded together of what we so quickly forget on our own. Our hearts will never be satisfied by anything other than God. Our hearts will never be satisfied by anything than our personal relationship with Christ. It's what led Asaph to say, I have no other desire in this life. May we as a church like Asaph rejoice in him who is alone the satisfaction of our life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do not know in this room how many people are at a crisis of faith. I know there have been many times in my own life where I've struggled with things. I've doubted you. I've doubted your character because of the circumstances of life. And yet I'm thankful that instead of just kind of washing that over, Lord, you bring these things and you highlight them in your word so that we can see that our, what we see in this life is not all there is. I'm thankful this morning for Asaph's struggle because it, it highlights our struggle, but it also gives us hope. Because I believe that we too, as we come together in, in this place of worship, and as we too think about who God is and his character and what God has done and what he's going to do, God, I pray that you would help us to see that there is a much bigger picture than what we are experiencing currently in this life. And that when we look upon the events of these days from eternity, we will see that there is nothing in this life that compares to knowing you. To being able to speak with you and hear your voice. To know your comfort, even in the midst of our struggles. I pray for each person in this room, Lord. Many of whom are probably going through struggles right now. Many of whom may be doubting and be conflicted. I pray that they would find their portion In you that they would realize that you are their ultimate good that you are the treasure that is fully worth living for even when it doesn't make sense in this life I pray that they put their trust in you once again this morning we're gonna have a time of prayer now we want to give you an opportunity just to have time to be honest before God to process those emotions those feelings that you have not by yourself but in his presence Think this morning about who he is. Consider what he's done, what he promises he's going to do. Think about the big picture and allow God to even in this moment minister to your pain into to your struggle and to your questions and to your doubts. We don't always do this, but we're also going to make available uh, Brian Brown, one of our pastors, is going to be in the balcony. Mike and I will be here in the front. We'll have deacons around if you need. If you need prayer this morning, if you're facing a struggle, you're having doubts and you just say, I I just need prayer. I don't want to walk this alone. We would be happy to pray with you this morning. So please feel free to come forward, go up to Brian in the balcony. If not, have a seat and we'll just enjoy this time of prayer before our Father.